0: When my son was about four months old, I was in pastor's college getting theological training. And there was an event at the dean of the pastor's college house. We were all invited to come over and to hang out and to spend time as a class. It was towards the end of the year. There was one rule, though, no children. So everyone had to get a babysitter. That's fine. Our son was four months old. No big deal. So we took him to my mom's house, dropped him off, and said, we'll be back in a few hours when this event is over. I wasn't exactly sure when it ended. It was early afternoon. It was supposed to end in the early evening. So we thought maybe five or six hours. Dropped him off, drove to where I was supposed to be, met my wife there and some other people, and we're having a good time for about maybe 37 minutes. Then I get a call. It's my mom. So I'm like, "Hey, I thought I forgot something. I'm an idiot. I forgot something." It's my mom, and I hear my son screaming. And my mom, being a mom, just said, "Come get this boy." <laughs> so, Ma, what's wrong? He hasn't stopped crying from the moment you left. Come get this boy. I said, Ma. I'm at an event. Can you, remember back in the day when, maybe some of y'all don't know about this, but back in the day, moms would dip that, that, that tea, that thing in a little bit of wine or something, put that baby to sleep nice. Some women who just found out about that was like, hmm. So I was like, well, Ma, can you, she was like, come get this boy. He cannot be away from y'all for a minute. And so I said, took look to my wife and I said, hey, babe, I need to go pick him up. She was like, all right. So I said, hey, sorry, guys, I'm going to get my son. He trumps the no kids rule. So I'm going to pick my son up. As soon as I walked in the door, he stopped crying and he went like this and leaned right to me. And I grabbed him and I said, all right, mom. She said, he can't come back over here till he's okay being separated from y'all. And so I jokingly said, he'll be back tomorrow, mom that anxiety of being separated is real. In fact, I would say in our culture today, that would be classified for adults particularly as separation anxiety disorder. Right? This this fear of being separated from something that you love or someone you love or from safety or security is a real challenge for a lot of people. Now, it was it's a funny story when Your child is four months old, and I frame it like this. But it's a fundamental reality for people to fear being separated from something that gives them comfort and safety. At the end of last week's sermon, I answered a question and I said this statement We're all, all Christians are on some level a little bit insecure about their salvation. A little insecure. Sometimes we wonder, does God really forgive me for all the stuff I've done? I actually think that Christians who are afraid to die are afraid to die not because of the unknown of death, but because of the known. Because we're going to see God and find out if we really were forgiven. And that fear is something that all of us have, uh, in one sense, an eternal separation anxiety. Am I living in this life? And am am I sure that I'm going to be able to be with God? Is this really true? Because it would be a travesty to live in light of a reality that's not going to be yours especially one as severe as what the scripture says. So to be honest, there's probably a great deal of us that have a little bit of separation anxiety, afraid of the comforts of reality. This morning's passage, as best as possible, provides a cure for separation anxiety. It is the last few verses of Romans chapter 8 where God speaks directly to the reality of separation from him. What does that mean? Who does it apply to? How do Christians like us, find ourselves comforted by the internal fear that many of us don't like to admit except in our most transparent moments that we're all a little insecure about our relationship with the Lord because we're aware of our sinfulness and we're a little afraid of the separation anxiety eternally because that means something devastating. So how do we process that? What does God want us to know and believe from his perspective about that reality for those of us who believe in him? Well, he gives us a bit of a cure for as best as our faith will believe it. Beginning in verse 35 of Romans chapter 8, He says this, I am quoting from the CSB translation. He says this, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to each of us, particularly those of us who genuinely have faith in you as we wrestle with the tension of our disobedience at times and your forgiveness. This is our identity is always at war. The 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 things that are not our experience, the things that we don't feel, we don't feel forgiven, we don't feel loved, we don't feel like we're a son or a daughter. We don't feel like a co-heir of Christ. We don't feel like we're more than a conqueror. The, the, The aspects of what we don't experience are declared by you as fundamentally a part of our identity. And sometimes it contrasts what we do experience. So for all of us, maybe not in this moment, but at some moments, we all have a little bit of separation anxiety. And we're all just a little insecure about our faith in you. Maybe not in this moment, but at some moments, it's our reality. So I pray that this message today would be a cure, as we have heard previously through your word. This chapter has been an amazing journey for us to go through and and. And, and, and wrestle throughout the, the contours of the, the different theological frameworks that you've laid out. And to varying degrees of our understanding, we've been able to benefit from this chapter. I pray as we close out Romans 8 today that you would help us to cure as best as our faith will allow whatever separation anxiety we have as it relates to our relationship with you. For you say very bold statements in these last four verses of Romans 8. May we boldly believe them. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our passage begins with verse 35. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now this question stems from the who's in the previous two verses. Last week, we looked at five questions from God, sort of a Q&A from God. And the last of those questions are all who questions. Verse 33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? He answers it. God is the one who justifies. Verse 34, who is the one that condemns? In other words, if God is the one who justifies and God is the creator of all things, then who can say anything opposite of what God says is true and it be legitimate? If God says you are forgiven, you are justified, means not guilty before him. Not guilty doesn't mean we didn't sin. He said not guilty means we're not going to be punished for that sin. If he says that's true, then who can say otherwise? But these are elements of our relationship with God that are not our experience. So by faith, we fight to believe that we're forgiven when we've done this same thing again. And again, is God really? I mean, most of us would get tired of someone sinning against us consistently and would have to forgive them. Especially unless it's a baby. And even then, it's like, take this child. Where's that wine at? There's a reality. But this question functions, again, as both a question and an emphatic statement. It, it brings conclusion to the question of who can say something about you that God hasn't said. But this verse, and this section, the verses that preceded in this section, set us up to have a very brief but serious conversation about an attribute of God that is going to challenge us in Romans 9. I don't know how Paul was thinking when he laid out this and he was inspired by the spirit in writing. I tend to believe that Paul knowing what was is coming wanted to make sure that we had a firm foundation On God's love because our perspective of God and his love is going to be challenged in the next chapter. And so in this chapter, God is making sure he's doubling down and making sure that those who genuinely believe in Jesus have a firm understanding. But it sets up a a significant yet brief moment that we're going to take to talk about the love of God. This is a challenging theological concept. In 2000, a theologian named Don Carson wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's a short book, and it's, I think, required reading on this topic. And the reason why is because 1 John 4 tells us that God is love. And that is sort of how we come to know God. It talks about God's love for us. This passage is talking about God's love for us. And so we extend that to God is love. And then we see passages that are famous, like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And this idea of God's love is a fundamental reality that we love to embrace because no one wants to imagine loving someone whose hatred is their fundamental characteristic. So thinking of God as love is a wonderful reality, but, but it, it, it's been obscured because there are other attributes of God that are, that are equally true, like God's wrath and God's justice and that, that some people will experience his love and some won't. And in this book, in chapter three in particular, there's four chapters in this book. Don Carson takes the, the reality of God's wrath and love and he says, listen, these aren't paradoxical, they're not one versus the other. God doesn't have mood swings. You know, you know how we could be, God's not bipolar. Right. This is a reality. This is God is both wrath and he's both love. And those all are going to come out. Now, why are we talking about this right now briefly? Because the context of God's love that will not be separated from us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ isn't just simply because Christ is loving. It's, it's, so in other words, it's specific to people. There are particular people that this passage is talking about. This passage isn't communicating this type of love for everyone. It talks about people that God foreknew, that he predestined. predestined. It's talking about these are people who are being conformed to the image of his son. That doesn't describe everyone, and they may not even describe everyone that we know. Right, right. And so we're left to wrestle with this difficult doctrine of the love of God, to quote Don Carson's book title. is how do we process this? I said John 3.16, but you know, guess what it says in John 3.18? Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he is not believed in the name of his one and only son. There is a dichotomy that doesn't really exist, but it is communicated as if it should exist. In fact, there are, as we speak, major theological conversations and debates over the impassibility of God versus the passibility of God. Does God actually experience emotion? Is he affected by emotion? You would say that way, but then God is immutable. God doesn't change. So, therefore, God cannot be affected by emotion. God cannot suffer because suffering is is being submitted to a consequence, but God is above every consequence. He's above every circumstance. So, how can God demonstrate effectual emotions? It's not as simple as we think. These are debates that are happening sort of in the theological world, stuff that we don't get into. This is a reality. And in chapter 9, we are going to be confronted with that reality. This is preparing us for that. This reality of what's being said here, the love of Christ is for those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ are those who believe in Christ. Those who believe in Christ are those that God foreknew. Those who God foreknew, he also predestined, predetermined, decided beforehand to conform to the image of his son. And so all the suffering that happens to people is a part of being conformed to the image of God's son. In fact, if you look at any credible translation of the Bible, you will find that the majority of the trials and sufferings that we read about are not of unbelievers but of the saints. (laughs) As a matter of fact, there's probably, and I don't know percentages, but there's probably an 80-20 percent where the majority of the Bible is about the believer, those who trust God. In terms of not, it's, it's about Jesus, but I'm talking about when it highlights people's suffering, it's not talking about unbelievers who disobey God. Sure, there's 1 Samuel 15 where the king of the Amorites gets killed and stuff like that, but what we're talking about when you read the Bible is most of the suffering that you see climaxed fully in Jesus is about people who love God. So this question is a real question. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now, he's asking a question that he's already answered, but this is sandwiched between two truths. On the top half, he does all the who questions. It's about your identity, what you don't experience. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Top half of the sandwich. Bottom half of the sandwich are things that we do experience. So God doesn't just speak to what we don't experience that we have to have by faith. He speaks to what we can experience that challenges our faith and reminds us of this reality. And he says this, can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? See, those are things that we can and do experience. I may not know what it feels like to be justified, but I know what what danger feels like. We know what distress feels like, to some degree affliction and persecution. We can relate to those things. That's not outside. There may be aspects of that experience that we don't have, but we can relate to those things. So the first half of the sandwich is our identity that we can't relate to. We believe it by faith that we're justified, that we're not condemned. But the bottom half of that sandwich, that's stuff that we experience. Look at the language. Affliction. Affliction is simply oppression, trouble, suffering, persecution, distress, difficulty, Anguish, being constricted, constriction. Persecution, a systemic hunting down of believers to inflict pain or death because of their faith. Famine, severe food shortages. Just not having enough to eat. Nakedness. Destitution, lack of sufficient clothing. A lack of ability to be able to provide for yourself. Danger, the risk of harm or injury. And the sword, being put to death or killed by. Most of these categories were the specific ways that Christians in the early church suffered because they believed in Jesus. And any of those experiences would make anyone question God's love. Would make any of them. Can you imagine? I can't imagine being a Christian in, I, watch, I read a lot of Voice of the Martyrs and watch a lot of that stuff talk to Call and Caller about persecution in China. We can just go anywhere right now. We can post up and have a Bible study. And somebody might be like, I'm sorry, you, can, you know, if you're real charismatic with it, they might be like, hey, you got to quiet down, you got to get out of here. <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to be hooting and hollering in Panera, <laughs> casting demons out at McDonald's. But <laughs> even though that, never mind, I'm not even familiar <laughs> with My kids love McDonald's. Stay focused. (laughs) Any of those experiences would would threaten anyone. Can you imagine that? God loves you. You hear God's for you, but you're starving. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You can't eat. And you, maybe you can handle that for yourself. Maybe you can grind, but you have a six-year-old child who's looking to you to provide for food. And they're, they're insufficiently dressed. This is the early church's experience and these are brothers and sisters in different parts of the world experience. Maybe not ours. Maybe not ours. We can't relate to that yet. Now to be clear, he's not saying the love of Christ keeps us from experiencing these things. The fact that we have not is not some measure of the love of Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when we do experience these things, it's not because Christ doesn't love us. But we, and throughout human history, are tempted to think, whoa, God must be really angry with those folks. He must not love those people. Case in point, Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. It says this, at that time, some people came and reported to him, spoiler alert, to him is Jesus, they reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So brutal. Pilate took people, killed, killed them, and put their blood and mixed them with their sacrifices. And he, spoiler alert, Jesus, responded to them, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? Like, do you think that because the suffering is there that it means they're more sinful, that God is punishing them more so because they suffer in that way? He said, no. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will also perish as well or those 18 that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? So if you flip the question, he's saying, does God not love them less than he loves, because he killed them more violently than what you experience? No, 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 no. The way you die means nothing. It's the way you live that is everything. Everyone is tempted to think, man, when I suffer, God doesn't love me. And we're all sin searching. Okay, what did I do? What did I do? Now, many of us don't see ourselves in this list. Affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. We don't see ourselves on this list. So how do we process this? Because this is a list that we actually hope that we don't see ourselves in, right? right. There's no one here of sound mind that's like, hey, trying to be afflicted, man. <laughs> There's no one in here that looked at their friend and be like, bro, that famine though? <laughs> I, of sound mind. This is an avoidable list if it's our choice. Mm-hmm. So, how do we process this? serious list. This is a severe list when it's not our experience. Do we just hope we get to the next part? What is he saying for us if we don't experience this? Well, here's a message for us. If the severity of the trials that people experience in this list is not the absence of God's love, then how could it be for the minimalistic trials that we experience in comparison. So if God allowing people to experience affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and being killed by the sword is not the absence of his love, then how could it be for us who need jobs, want to get married, want our children to be saved, and whatever else you can fill in the blank. If this list isn't the absence of God's love, then our lists are not either. That's what he's saying. If you are here and you have a child that is unbelieving and you've raised them that way and they are rejecting the faith, it is not because God doesn't love you. If you have a spouse, challenging situation, it is not because God doesn't love you. If you are single and desire to be married for some time, it is not because God doesn't love you. If you're facing the reality of running out of funds and you need a job and you can't find one, and you're praying and struggling and working through your connections, it is not because God doesn't love you. If you're a believer in a third world country or in a country where you're facing persecution, it is not because God doesn't love you. And this is important because it's one of the first things we go to when we experience suffering. Mm -hmm. This is church, we can be honest, at least today. Mm -hmm. These are things that Paul experienced as a believer. This was his life. And Paul never thought of his life and the suffering that he experienced as an indication of him not being saved. In fact, for him, it was proof that he is saved. You know why? Because anyone who suffers and continues to believe in Jesus is proof that they belong to Jesus. That's why he lays this out. Don't let these things make you think you don't belong because they're happening. He's saying some of these things are happening because you do believe. If he's really conforming us to the image of his son, as Romans eight twenty nine says, and if all things work together, that includes the categories that I listed and those that you have that I didn't list. This is our reality. He doubles down on it by proving it in the next verse. In verse 36, he says this, as it is written, Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, as it is written. Whenever you see that, it's quoting from somewhere in the Old Testament or some writing that was important to the Jews in their relationship with God. This particular, as it is written, is a quote from Psalm 44, verse 22. Identical. Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Theologian Leon Morris on his commentary on this particular verse, he says this, the words in the original psalm, Psalm 42, express the perplexity of the people of God in the face of inexplicable suffering. It's confusing. It's confusing. But Paul cites them, the list, the affliction to persecution, that list. Paul cites them to bring out the truth that for God's people, there is a real risk and a call for real devotion. Let me pause for a second. Let me ask you this. How do you know if what you believe is true if it never gets challenged? How do you know you trust the Lord? if everything is just sweet. So we want to have a sweet life and then go to heaven and it be sweeter. I love a McDonald's sweet tea too much. But I guarantee the sweet tea in heaven, it better be better than that McDonald's sweet tea. I'm counting on it. I don't even want to move from that. I'm counting on that. That's something I care about. Some people want to know if their animals made it to heaven. What's the sweet tea like for me? Here's what he says, continuing. Christians might be tempted to think that because the love of Christ is so real and so unshakable, they need not fear that they will run into trouble. Scripture shows that while the love is sure, so are troubles. For the sake of God, we face death all day long. Actually, Paul says something stronger than this. We are being killed all day long. It is real and not imaginary peril that Christians face. The challenging aspects of our experiences are not, that are not a part of our identity, that are a part of our identity, are not the absence of God's love. And for Paul to quote Psalm forty-four twenty-two, and use that in its current setting is showing that this is, that psalm was probably, what, 1,500 years prior to when he used it. So Paul is saying, listen, this is a theme for God. What you're experiencing is more normative than we like to give it credit for because in our culture, Comfort is Jesus. Yep, yep. But it's why, like, if, if we, you know, when we sing it is well with my soul, right, there are times when that song has a major impact, depending on what you're going through. Yeah, yeah. There are times you sing that song and it's like, ah, it's, it's, I, like, I, like I like the other version better or something. then there are times when you sing it and your eyes are watering because those words remind you that God is still good and that it is well in my soul is more a goal that I'm getting to not the moment of clarity that I feel this is the reminder That this is our reality, that the love of God is not separated by accusations, by condemnation, or by affliction or persecution. All things that God allows for. Paul, using Psalm 42, gives proof to what he said a few verses back about God foreknew he predestined. So for Paul to take that verse from 1,500 years ago and use it as justification for the life that believers may experience, particularly that church and his own life, is proof that God predestined and foreknew. And we're walking, living in light of that. He's trying to protect our identity in Christ. Now, it's true that the love of Christ produces love for Christ. But what holds us is not our love for Christ because we know we fall short of it too often. What holds us is the love of Christ. Despite the potential for the varying degrees of undesirable experiences in, this, in our life, in this list and in our own list, we'd have, we could make up our own list. Make up our own list. Make your own list. I don't know what will be on it. I know mine would be splinters, <laughs> and buying a sweet tea that's not sweet. I think that's sinful. Despite those, unexp- those undesirable experiences, here's what he says in verse th- 37. So he's naming, does affliction, does persecution, does famine, does nakedness, do these things separate you from the love of Christ? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's a powerful statement. We are more than conquerors. That's a powerful statement. Because that word conquers is throughout the scripture. 1 John 5, 4, and 5 says this, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world. Our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world? That's three times. He's trying to make a point here, right? Who is the, who's the one that conquers the world? But the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So this says we're more than conquerors. First John is saying we've conquered the world because we have faith in Jesus. Revelation 2, God's talking, Jesus is talking to one of the seven churches. Listen to what he says. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 321 to another church, he says this, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The right to sit with him on the throne. That's a serious moment. You ever watch a show where someone walked into the White House and they were like, go ahead, sit in the chair. And they sit down They're like, oh, this is where the president sits. Jesus says you can sit on the throne be like nah I'm not sitting there Lord no way that's how I'm going to be nah Lord I'm not sitting there sit my son no I'm not sitting there Lord I'm <laughs> sitting on that throne man sit alright you got him I'm, I'm not disobeying you Lord this is comfortable here it says to the one who conquers in the present tense but this one says we're more than conquerors It says we have conquered because of our faith in Jesus. This says we're more than conquerors because of Jesus. But this verse says you must conquer to the end. So what do we do with all of this? If we're more than conquerors, then why do we have to conquer? Well, here's the reality. The fact that the scripture says we're more than conquerors gives us faith and confidence to conquer. That's the point of it. You're more than conquerors. If I'm more than that, then I'm definitely going to do that. Right. I'll never forget my first and only year of coaching baseball. <laughs> first I coached baseball. Yes, I have many man of many talents. So, <laughs> so I was coaching baseball with a buddy of mine. And this was probably, this was 98. Was we were, we, they gave, each, each of us had uh, Major League Baseball names and jerseys. So we were the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. And we were playing the St. Louis Cardinals. They, they just had us. I thought they stacked their squad. I mean, these kids were uh, about seventh grade. It's like 13 years old, 13 years old kids. We had a great team. Loved them. That was, to this day, my richest coaching experience. And this team, St. Louis, though, they were just incredible. And so we had to play them in the playoffs. We played the Royals, and we won. And we had to play them in the playoffs. And our team was afraid. So I remember sitting down talking. My friend was actually the the coach. He knew baseball. I just knew kids. So I was encouraging them, listen, it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be afraid, but we got to fight our fears. And I was talking to them. We were cracking jokes, laughing, but they were genuinely afraid. So we get up to this thing, and our pitcher, he pitched a no-hit six-inning game. For those of you who don't know baseball, that means none of their players got a hit. Shut the whole team down. We beat them. It was incredible. The commissioner of the league, who hated me and my friend because we were really unorthodox, came over and said, you guys have to play one more game tonight. We were like, huh? That's not what this guy, he said, yeah, you got to play the Cleveland Indians. We were like, nah, we don't, we don't got to play that. He was like, nah, you got to play the Cleveland Indians or you guys don't make it. You don't win. So all the parents, everyone was upset. Oh, you cheating. you just mad because it, the Cardinals were supposed to win. They were the, the ones that everyone thought were going to win, but we were the gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> so my kids, we, we had spent so much emotion in that game, my kids were distraught. Yeah, yeah. And so I just said, all right, guys, look, we got a two-hour break, and we got to go to uh, Watkins Mill Elementary, and we got to play them under the lights. And my kids were just dejected, like, man. So we got to the game. The Indians were all riled up because it was like, yeah, they're going to beat us. They were. We were tired. So we got there, and we were playing. We were hanging in there, and we were encouraging them. We can do it. And the game was tied. The game was tied. Five to five. And it was Matt Brew Baker's turn. And he was a shy kid, afraid, didn't think he was a good baseball player. And I walked up there with him. And I said, Matt, it doesn't matter what happens. You do the best you can, and we'll win this game. So he threw the first pitch, and he struck, struck out. And I said, let's go, Brew. Let's go, brew. And I cheered him on. Second hit, he struck out. Let's go, brew. And I said, everyone, let's go, brew. Pitch comes in. crack, Out of there. Game. We celebrated. But for Matt, that meant everything because I was there to encourage him. We were screaming. The shyest, most afraid kid on that team won the game for us. That's what the Lord is saying right here. He's with us. He cheers us on. And even though we strike out sometimes, we're going to hit the ball because Jesus is the coach. So when it says we're more than conquerors, he's <clears throat> not making this up. He's encouraging the reality to listen. In Jesus Christ, you are more than a conqueror. So when this suffering comes, when these afflictions, when the persecutions, when the denials when the, when the exams come in and it's not what you wanted, when, when, the, when you're putting out your resume and you don't get it back, when you, when you got to do things like change your major in the midst of it, and it's a chaotic time when you don't have confidence you're going to pass your final exam, when you go out and share the gospel because you're pumped up, but no one responds to it. It says you're more than a conqueror, not because of what you do, but through him. Jesus is saying, come on, Chris. Let's go, Antonio. Let's go, La Crystal. Let's go, Debbie. Let's go, Brian. Let's go, Tim. We're tired. We don't think we can hit the ball but in faith we swing. The reality that we are more than conquerors gives us confidence to conquer. It gives us confidence to persevere to the end. And this is why he can say this in verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. So these are all things that we can experience. He's, he's taking, this is all sort of a, a gumbo of reality. Saying, not death. Your death, you know, to die is gain. Death for the believer is in the absence of God's love. It's being welcomed into his presence. Life. The struggles of life is in the absence of God's love. It's the time to persevere, fight for joy in the midst of them. He talks about angels and rulers. Rulers is another word to say demons. There's a symmetry here that he's doing death, life, angels, demons, present or future. The God who holds past, present, and future, who holds death and life, who created angels and demons none of these things separate us from the love of God. This is why I said last week man, it's dangerous to assume that stuff like sickness or something is somehow judgment. I mean, okay, if you think so, I don't know how you're going to prove it. It's not like God's going to be like, hey, this car accident was because of last week. Remember that time? <laughs> like that's, just, that's just not, God doesn't do retribution. He doesn't punish his, his, his sons and daughters. He punishes his son. He may discipline us for things. The God who holds all these things, even height and depth, those are typically seen by most theologians as sort of the expanse of the the sky and the stars and the depth of almost like going to hell below. says even the created universe, nothing separates us from the love of God. Now, you may not have picked up on this, but this is a very subtle, I love it when when God does this and inspires the writers to do this. Look at verse 35. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 39. will not be able to separate us from the love of God. That's intentional. So it's saying the Son and the Father love us. And the Spirit of God, a couple verses back, is in us. This is a Trinitarian proclamation. This is the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, all united in love for us, cheering us on to swing the bat and take a hit, even though we're tired and dejected. This chapter wonderfully emphasizes God's love for the saints in Christ. But it's for those who believe in Jesus. He has something to say about those who don't. And how he, from his perspective, manages that. And we'll address that when we get to chapter nine. Questions? Um, The The difficult doctrine of the love of God. It's a fantastic, it's maybe, I don't know, 80 pages I'm sure there's a ton of books that have been written since then, but I think it's the best book I've read on the, on the topic of the love of God. And each chapter highlights uh, just the reality of why it's difficult. Okay. Thank you. Good. Anyone else? Um, Pastor Kirk, sometimes I have issues when knowing that um, other Christians in third world countries and China and all these other places are getting heavily persecuted. Um, And when it comes to our personal issues that we're dealing with, maybe like holding a friendship down or not speaking or hating somebody, um, it doesn't feel equivalent to being a proper Christian. I don't feel like um, when I get upset about these things, I I get mad at myself and say, why am I mad about this? There's people getting killed for loving Jesus, but I can't forgive somebody. How do I look at that and how do I handle that? knowing that's going on in the world, like I feel a little privileged and like a spoiled brat when I'm a, a child in America or a Christian in America. How do I look at that? I think I think you're already doing it. I think your acknowledgement of that, and I think all of us should to some degree, you know, James uh, Peter talks about your, your brothers around the world are going through the same trials, right? First Peter 4. I think there's a reality for us that we should be sobered and to some degree ashamed at some of the things. It doesn't minimize that our suffering is real, mm-hmm. but I think we have to put things in context, right? We're, we're not yet, so remember the scripture said in Hebrews 12, it says, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about looking at Jesus. I think in many ways, a lot of us haven't and maybe won't experience the persecution. And so to me, it justifies really going after the Lord and really fighting against the things that I do struggle with, because I know there are people who are going through things that I don't want to go through, and they still trust the Lord. Mm-hmm. And having said, let me, let me just say one thing. Trusting to those of, us who, those of you who have grown up in the church, sometimes there can be this. There's this common statement by people who grow up in the church and walk away from the church. And it's a statement like this. I only believe this because I was raised like this. I only believe in the Lord because you, I grew up in a Christian home and stuff like that. And that's a very pervasive thing. Let me say one thing to that. If that were true, if that's true, then what do you say to the people who grew up in the Middle East that didn't have a pastor as a parent, that didn't have the Bible, and they actually die for the Jesus that you reject? What do you say to the Christians in China who didn't grow up in a Christian home that heard the gospel, believe this thing to be true, and believe it so much that they're willing to be persecuted because they believe it's that true? Like, none of us believes because we grew up in a particular home. That doesn't, we, we believe because God gave us faith to believe, and we responded. We believe because of Romans 8, what it says. We believe because of Ephesians 2. We don't believe because we grew up in a Christian home. Because on the flip side of that, there are plenty of people that grew up in a Christian home that reject the Lord, right? The guarantee is not where you grow up. The guarantee is who you believe in. That's reality. So I think for those of us, particularly in America, in the West, you know, we need to see suffering in context. I joke around about splinters and stuff like that because they really hurt in the moment. But in the grand scheme of things, really <laughs> now, I'm not saying your suffering is not real or belittling it at all. But we need to put things in perspective. So biblically, we need to go back to Romans eight eighteen. I consider that our present suffering is not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And then when we need to see other people suffering, that should encourage us to keep pressing. That's what Hebrews 11 is supposed to do. It's supposed to remind us that the saints of old had all these circumstances, what do you call inexplicable sufferings that that Leon Morris used in his commentary. That reality kept people still trusting the Lord. Moses, it says, gave up the, the living in the fleeting pleasures of sin with the Egyptians to be afflicted with the Israelites. Mm-hmm. People's stories like that should, as a matter of fact, we need to do more of this. Mm-hmm. We need more people hearing about other people's lives because I do think we're kind of solved. Yep. Yeah. I think we're, we're kind of like, oh, my, my father's not working. you know. <laughs> and it's like, I get it. It's frustrating, but it's not we're not suffering because we believe in Jesus. And that's different. Yeah. It's a different thing. So, yeah, I saw another hand over oh. here. saw some hands over here I always miss this side. Over here, I always oh. miss this side. Look, some people got offended that their Wi-Fi wasn't working and ready to call. <laughs> Look, you're about to call Verizon as soon as you leave out of here. So yeah. I think... Um, I wanted to understand the point. Um, I think my sensitivity to the bi- bipolar, I have family with bipolar, so when I hear people make that joke, I lose the meaning. But I think you were actually trying to make a really good point, and I missed it because I was, you know me, I'm um, processing theory. Why are they laughing at that? That's not funny. But I think there's a real good point that God is not, con- I don't remember, God's not controlled by emotions. What was the main point? Because I want to get that one. Because I think you were making a good point, I just didn't hear it. The point is, so when I say God's not bipolar, I think it's a real thing. I think people use it so lightly that it makes it difficult to process the reality of it. So people sound bipolar, and it's just like, maybe. But some people, that is a real issue for them. But it's used so much. There's so many psychiatric terms that have been dumbed down to everyday use. Like even the word depression. I think people use depression. But when you talk to somebody who's really been depressed and in depression, it's a little bit different. There's a difference between having a bad day and I'm in depression. There's a difference between someone who really struggles with the ability to maintain a stable mental state versus people who are just having a bad day and they're just switching their mood. So in that sense, that's where that came out of. But the, the theological framework I'm saying is that God, there's, a, there's this conversation that is God impassable or passable? So impassibility means that God is unaffected. He doesn't suffer and he doesn't experience emotion in the way that we do. God is not controlled, but he doesn't respond emotionally to circumstances because God is unchanging. He's immutable. But then there are some that say, well, that can't be true at all. Because, I mean, you got Jesus weeping when Lazarus died, right? You You got this degree of emotion and this response and this thing. And so when I said God is not bipolar, what I'm saying is, there's no, this, 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 this shouldn't even be happening. Mm-hmm. These are both true about God. It's not like God is, you know, happy. in the Like in the Old Testament, people think God was mean and, and sadistic. And then the New Testament of Jesus, he's really nice. And it's like, but Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. So he was there too. This isn't some, you know, this switch of emotion between God. It's all God. All God, all the time. Yep, Natalie. Um, You talked about the love of God, the type of love of God specifically for believers. So what do you say to a non-believer about the love of God? Wait till we get to Romans 9. We'll talk through it. Uh, Okay. (laughs) We'll talk. We're going to get there. We're going to talk through it. There's a lot. I want God to say it. Let's read it. Let's see how. Let's process it together. Romans 9 through 11. We'll be processing that reality together. All right. Good. That's a good question. though. Dina. Good morning. You were saying that um, God doesn't punish us for, like, you done this, so therefore I'm going to bring a sickness like coronavirus virus on China, or you did this last week, so I um, that's what that car accident was about. And I get what you're saying, but I was hoping you could unpack that a little bit more because when you look at, like, Old Testament, like David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, then the child, the first child that came out of that did die. And um, some of the plagues, basically the people that rejected God. Okay, so I get that. But just if you could kind of help unpack that just a little bit more so that I don't get the wrong um, understanding of that. Because you said he disciplines us, but maybe not punishes us. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What I'm so it depends on how you think about punishment and discipline. I know in our, in our vernacular, those are kind of – Synonymous words like you want punishment and you're being disciplined. Right. But in the biblical sense, Jesus dying on the cross was not being disciplined. He was being punished for the sins. He was receiving the wrath of God. So when I'm thinking of the term punishment, biblically speaking, it's receiving the wrath of God for your sins. It's it's justice. It's retribution for your rejection of God. No Christian experiences that in this day and age because he punished Jesus on the cross. So whatever discipline that we may go through, I didn't say there's a discipline, that's Hebrews 12, right? And it even says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but rather it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained up under it, right? So it's not a matter of, we're not gonna, God's not gonna be like, hey, I need to tighten you up a little bit, right? But it's not, this is the wrath for your sins. That was experienced by Jesus. Otherwise, then the cross is, it's insufficient. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant the wrath of God on him for the forgiveness of others. So those of us who do believe, there are some disciplines of God, just like I would my parent, right? My, my, my son. I, my discipline of them is not, a, a, you're no longer my son. My discipline of them is not, you're not, I don't love you anymore. No, I'm disciplining you because I love you and don't want you to continue in this way. So it's the same thing, it's just a different category because we don't see God and we don't, can't interact with him. He's not going to hug me when I'm, after he disciplines me like, I will my son. I don't get that affirmation. You know what I mean? I get it by faith. So it's like, man, does he really love me? Because I still feel like, you know, whatever that is. And so that's what I meant. The punishment is biblical is the wrath of God. And there are people who will are going to receive that punishment. But there are people who are not. And that's what he's celebrating here. That, that we, those who are in Christ, do not receive that, the wrath of God. Good question. All right, we got a, our book. Last one. Do you think that uh, discipline can, like, discipline point us to, point us to uh, grow? In our lives? Can discipline point us to grow? Oh, yeah, that's the ver- I mean, that's Hebrews 12, 15. That's the verse. Being trained up under it, right? It produces righteousness. So it says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time. Like, no one's like, oh, man, this is fantastic. It's like, no, but, but it trains us up. But who... You've been trained up under it, it, you become more righteous. So that's James, right? Count it all joy when you experience trials of various kinds because it produces perseverance, right? Again, it's, this, it's, this, it's a sentiment of how do you know you trust the Lord if you're never challenged to believe it, right? If everything is always so smooth, how do you know? This is why in, in, in marriage, how do you know you and your spouse really love each other if you don't get challenged to go against that love and, and make it through it? You know what I'm saying? How do you know? that it's, just, it's, it's, it's really the natural way of life. But when it's God, because it's God and we know he can peace be still, all of the stuff in our life, we kind of just want that to happen. And so when that doesn't happen, it becomes a lack of love, right? When they woke Jesus up in Matthew 8, he was, I think Jesus was having a good nap. <laughs> and they woke him up and he was like, peace be still. And they were like, honey, he was like, man, I just fed 10,000 people and you worried about the wind, man. Don't wake me up till you know. What I'm saying? I mean, just it's that reality of like, no, this is when you the Lord. But he didn't. He didn't say you no longer believe in him, right? He didn't say. He just said, listen, like I got it. It's, you're good. Like you are with me, you're good. And this is what this book is saying. Listen, I got it. You're good. You're with me. You're good. You're good. Now we're not on the boat. We can't see it. That's why he told Thomas, "Blessed are those who do not see and believe," right? But we're good. This is what he's trying to help us see because we're not seeing Jesus. We're not hearing his words audibly like most of us aren't. We're not hearing his words audibly like we're not. We weren't there. We have to go by this word, this promise that's been preserved all this time for that purpose. That's one of the reasons why we're doing catechism stuff. Me and Carl been talking about because we want to connect ourselves. So, the church is so disconnected from the early church. We want to make sure, hey, this isn't unique. Like everyone's had to believe and suffer and make it and all the stuff that's happening right now, the Lord has preserved the church for 2,000 years. I think we'll be okay. (laughs) I think we'll be all right. The church has gone through a lot. last 2,000 years has been the bloodiest in probably human history. Some said the 20th century was. And we're still here. I think we'll be okay. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for just your, your word and for the declarations in your word that nothing can separate us from the love of the Son or the Father or the Spirit. Your Spirit is in us. It groans for us. It intercedes for us. The Son says intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And God, Father, you said you love us in Christ, through Christ, that we are more than conquerors because he conquered the world and our faith is in him. Even though it's hard for us to, to, to get that, there is a reality that Jesus' death on the cross, that, a, that atonement is so significant that it really does and is capable of forgiving billions, billions of people. It's that significant for you to have sent your only son, to become a man, and to grow up and spend the first 30 or so years of his life just observing and living around people who were sinning against you and him left and right. And then to, to take on that he, it wasn't like he didn't understand what was happening in the world around him. He lived every day looking at people who don't recognize the creator, the one who sustains their very life, walking among them. And then he decides to, as he said from the beginning, to begin a ministry where he's redeeming people, both in the modern-day moment that would spread throughout eternity, that would even circle back throughout human history. His death on the cross, his blood that was shed, his body that was broken is so significant that you're making promises to those of us who believe in him, who struggle, who suffer, who sometimes complain, who sometimes willfully rebel. His death was so significant that you've made promises that what we experience in His life will not separate us from the love that you have for us because of his sacrifice. So help us to remember that, yours included. It's easy to forget that or to not believe that or to find some nuance that changes that reality. Help us to remember that we are more than conquerors, that we're being conformed to the image of your son, that we're more than conquerors, that like Brubaker, Matt Brubaker, we too are being encouraged by you, that we swing even though we think we're going to lose, we think we can't hit the ball. That moment changed that boy's life. And may these promises in your word change ours. So as we now, as the ushers come forward and we we take communion, for those of us that genuinely believe in you, that this little this little contraption, this little cup with this little wafer is, a, is just a reminder of your body being broken and your blood that was shed for us that reminds us that we are not separated from your love despite, despite some undesirable circumstances. As we do this this morning, Lord, may you be glorified and may we be edified your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.